I am grateful that we have people who are willing to step up because that on Thursday allowed Bethany and I to be able to go out and visit people, um, have people over at our house, and, and have time with people who really needed it um, rather than having to clean up some of that stuff. So please know how much grateful I am in that regard. Because of the weather we've had for the past couple of Sundays, I figured numbers would be down last week, and I deviated from our Christmas messages. Um, instead of continuing on in Matthew, I took the opportunity to preach and establish a vision for establishing a reasonable, sustainable faith out of Genesis 12 last week. And so this week, I want to return to the book of Matthew and finish up that series that we were doing for Christmas um, and do the final sermon. Um, as we began on December 5th, or actually as we ended Colossians on December 5th, we ended Colossians in chapter 1, verse 14, and saw a presentation of Christ as Savior. And then we were able to jump into Matthew and see the arrival of Christ as Savior. So we got to see this Christ that was going to come redeem us and then see that happen. And I'm looking forward to next week as we return back into Colossians because then we have this wonderful, magnificent exaltation of Jesus Christ, about his role and his activities. Uh, but this week, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Acknowledging Christ, Four Responses to the Messiah. As always, I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. My plan is to look only at verses 1 through 12, but for the sake of context and reference, I want to read through verse 18. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Verse 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt, 
He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was, that was, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized what he had, that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, read, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. You may be seated. In 1884, at the young age of 27, in England, William Holman Hunt created the painted painting known as The Light of the World. It is a picture on the screen. It is a picture of Jesus Christ standing with the light in hand and him gently tapping on the door. To be honest, I personally object to physical portrayals of Christ and God in things like paintings and drawings. But neither will I deny the influence this painting has had through the years. It has been used countless times in Sunday schools across the world. Others have duplicated it multiple times and sent it out, and so it's become a status symbol within the Christian community. In this particular painting, Christ is displayed as this strong and sturdy figure, and the painter William Hunt explains, in England, spiritual figures are painted as if in a vapor. I had further reason for making the figure more solid than I would have otherwise ever otherwise done, as it is Christ alive forevermore. The painting is based on the well-known text from Revelation 3.20, where it is written, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he with me. Although you likely can't see it from your seat, the door in this picture has no handle. There's nothing on the outside to open it, indicating that in order for the door to be opened, it must be opened on the inside. And so it is with our relationship with Christ. <coughs> Knowledge is only as valuable as it is useful. It has only value if it is acted upon. To know Christ is at the door and not to respond is a failure. Knowledge of Christ demands a response. Knowing who he is requires that we respond in some way, and only one response results in the forgiveness of sins and ultimate eternal life in his presence. This morning I place before you this text from Matthew that raises up four different responses to the Messiah. And I want to call upon each of us to look upon our hearts this morning with sincere evaluation, asking, what is my reaction to the grand birth of our Lord and Savior? I want you to note first the agitation of Herod. Verses 1 through 4, we are told by Matthew, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired them where the Christ was to be born. 
News that should have brought elation only brings Herod apprehension. Instead of delight, Herod responds with distress. Herod was a calculated man, undertaking something only if it meant personal benefit or political gain. However, this news brought by the Magi was not part of his calculations. For some time, the Roman Empire had existed in a state of unrest. It had anticipated changes in its leadership. While the king had sovereign authority, or the emperor had sovereign authority, he was ultimately installed by the Senate. And it was known that there was some discontent with the current emperor, Caesar Augustus. This man that had appointed Herod to his role in B.C. 37 B.C., he was advancing in age, he was getting older, And he now was looked upon as a weak and feeble leader. Having no general since the retirement of Tiberius, the military was also in disarray. It was thought that the Senate was probably on the urge of making some changes, that they were probably seeking out the next king. And Herod knew something important about the Senate. It was made up primarily of magi. A change in leadership at the top often results in change in leadership at the lower levels as well. These magi would have arrived in the area with this large entourage, and so everybody would have knew of their arrival. Their presence would have been noted, and news that they were there would have reached Herod very quickly. For Herod then, news of their arrival initiated only one thought. They were here to remove him from power. The question that the Magi ask, though, as they go around the region, would quickly alleviate that fear. Because indeed, they were not seeking to remove him as king. Instead, they were seeking to revere a child, one who had been recently born. But their question poses a new threat, one that is probably of greater concern for Herod. Herod was appointed king over Israel. As an Edomite, he had no legal claim to the throne for which he occupied. Furthermore, the Jewish people had very little respect for him because he had no Jewish background. His marriage to his wife, Marianne, was simply a marriage of convenience rather than conviction. Showing just how calculated he is, he married her simply so that he would receive a response from the people. Because of her Jewish background, he was hoping that they would respect him more as a result. But the question of, that the Magi asks undermines Herod's resolution there. It undermines what Herod undertook to ensure there was some Jewish background in him. Because notice what the text says in verse 2. As the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Their question doesn't ask, where is the one who will be made king someday? The one, they're questioning, who is he or where is he? The one that was born king. They're not asking for somebody who has been born and we expect someday he'll be lifted up as a great leader. No, they're saying he is already the leader. He was born king of the Jews. Jesus is already king. Already the birth of Christ has fulfilled multiple prophecies. Genesis 3.15, he is born of the seed of a woman. Isaiah 7.14, as we saw two weeks ago or three weeks ago, that he was born of a virgin. Micah 5.2, he was born in Bethlehem. 
And in our reading of the text this morning from verses 14 through 18, we saw two more prophecies fulfilled. His birth was his installation as a king. And so the question posed by the Magi is a direct (coughs) refutation of Herod's authority. For a man whose primary ambition is to ensure his ongoing domination, the birth of Christ represents a considerable threat. The life of Herod was consumed by this intent to preserve his own power. And we see that in the next verses of Matthew chapter 2. Each of us is coming off of a celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior. Our church spent two weeks looking in the previous chapter, exploring the extraordinary events of Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, seeing both the conception of Christ and anticipating the coming of Christ. This is a grand event. It's triggering critical developments in the plan of God. Arguably, the first coming of Christ is the most important event in all of history. Perhaps the only other thing more important, the only other thing that would eclipse that, would be his second coming of Christ that will occur in the future. Certainly at this time, though, the time of Herod, no single event is as serious and as sobering as the birth of Christ. And look at how Herod acknowledges it. He disregards it. The magnitude of this event, the magnitude of the birth of Christ, increases the magnitude of Herod's failure to respond to the birth of Christ. The difference pictured between the Magi and Herod is striking and can't be more opposite. The Magi are willing to assemble this huge entourage and gather all that is needed in order to make this long journey And clearly clearly they had planned, because they brought gifts. So they anticipated that they were going to be worshiping Christ. But Herod, he's caught off guard. He's seemingly unaware of what is taking place, and unaware of the prophetic writings and what they reveal. That's not unanticipated. After all, he was not Jewish. But when he is presented with that information, when he is told what is taking place. He doesn't even journey across his own region for the newborn king. Instead of being comforted, Herod is concerned. So anxious about what will happen to his own power, Herod completely fails to grasp the importance of what is unfolding before his eyes. Jesus Christ is a challenge to personal autonomy. To admit Christ is Lord And Christ as God is to stipulate that he alone is sovereign, that he alone is in control, and that he alone is authoritative. That also means that we have to admit that we are not. We're not in control. We're not sovereign, and our authority is limited. People, though, are unwilling to acknowledge anything that might restrict their personal charge. The current condition of our culture offers itself as a prime example. Notice the current debates over politics and COVID. And what is the most pressing issue raised by everybody in those debates? Control, administration, authority, autonomy. This past Friday, we were able to hear arguments at the Supreme Court regarding the mandates about the vaccine. And if you followed the arguments of both sides, Basically, what you saw is that they were arguments about power. 
those supporting the mandate are those who think that they should have control over the virus and want control over people. And those against those mandates are arguing for control over their own lives. You want to know something really important in both those arguments? They're missing one key critical fact, and they're both wrong. Such issues are beyond our jurisdiction. They fall only under the authority of God. We don't even have the ability to discipline and regulate our own lives. They are subject to the sovereign will of God. I'm not calling your attention on this debate to talk about a political or medical situation or tell you how you should think. I'm only calling our attention on this to to look at something important. It mirrors, the culture's response, mirrors Herod's response to the birth of the Messiah. Like Herod, who was so consumed by his need to preserve his power, the people are also consumed by their need to preserve their authority. And in doing so, by being consumed by this, they have ignored the very plan of God. For most people, the greatest impediment for coming to Christ is acknowledging his supremacy and our dependency. Perhaps instead of trying to preserve our control, maybe we should step back and say, what is God trying to do? Like Herod, the people of our culture would rather save their throne rather than save their soul. I want you to know, second, the anxiety of the people. Verse 3 tells us that Herod heard this news from the Magi, and he was troubled, and his response was to assemble all the chief priests and the scribes. But tucked in those comments, in between those two comments, we read this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So as Herod was troubled, as Herod was disturbed, the people were troubled right along with him. They responded more to the king of the nation rather than to the king of all nations. If we know anything about Herod, then we know that they were simply responding to the combination of Herod's character and the circumstances taking place. And their reaction in many ways is not unwarranted. We could almost understand why they responded this way. It is true that as king, Herod sometimes took some positive steps and and did some positive projects in order to infuse good into the society. Under his authority, he developed things like coliseums and theaters and tracts, bringing entertainment to the people. At one time, during a great famine in 25 BC, he gathered gold objects from from his palace, melted them down, and had them sold so that he may have money to go buy food for the poor and those that were suffering. But Herod's endeavors, though, were always part of those calculated maneuvers to position himself politically. And so even his positive endeavors like that were always self-serving. There's a reason that history doesn't look kindly on Herod. His reputation as hateful and hurtful and harmful, it is well-earned and well-deserved. Stories abound about the evil perpetrated by Herod. The story is told that he expected upon his death few, if anybody, would mourn his death. And he was probably right. 
after what I just shared with you, there's a legitimate concern about his throne. And there's a legitimate concern about the people being concerned about his reaction. They didn't like him, and so he didn't think they would mourn. And so what he did is he decreed that upon his death, any criminal or any person being prosecuted for criminal that was in the jails at that moment would also be put to death. And in doing so, then he would ensure that there would be mourning in all of the nation at his death. Herod passed his time stressing over his ability to keep his throne and how he was going to ensure the longevity of his reign to the point that it was instant death for anybody he suspected even of trying to usurp him, of anyone he thought might plot against him. So paranoid was he that about this fact that shortly before his own death, he would order the death of his own two sons. He accused them of trying to overtake his throne, and so they were put to death. And that wife of convenience, Mary Ann May, who he married to build himself up, was also put to death for the same reason. Even she could not escape Herod's suspicions, being put to death in the same way as her sons for the same reason. Herod was both volatile and evil, a dangerous combination, because it meant that whenever things did not go his way, Herod could, and often would, react in the most extreme and most violent way possible. That's seen in the upcoming verses that we read this morning in Matthew chapter 2. Verse 16, where you see that he authorized the murder of innocent children for nothing more than the fact that they happened to be a certain age at a certain time. We could hardly fault the people for being troubled. They knew that if Herod was agitated about something, it was likely them that would bear the consequences. But there's one problem with their response. The greatest news had just arrived to them in the form of the Magi asking, where is the one born king of the Jews? In fact, verse 2 uses a progressive form, meaning it uses a word with an I-N-G ending. It says that they were continuously asking or saying, where is he? They didn't just ask once and then retreat when they couldn't find the answer. The Magi kept looking and kept searching, meaning they had anticipation that somebody there, if not everybody, should have known about this event. But the response of the people is fascinating because of, instead of reacting with adoration for the legitimate legal king of the Jews, the people react with anxiety for the illegitimate illegal king. The people were more concerned about safety than salvation. In a conversation with his disciples, Jesus explains in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life and will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Throughout scripture, especially with the teachings of Christ, there is a great contrast between the physical, material world and the spiritual, eternal world. There are verses that contrast the temporary nature 
of the physical world while expressing the permanency of the eternal world. And in contrast to Matthew 16 that we just read, these people were more concerned about gaining their life in the physical world than having it in the eternal world. We have an entire people group here who's more concerned about their physical well-being than their spiritual well-being. I want you to know, third, the apathy of the priest and king, priests and scribes. (coughs) Following the annotation that Herod was troubled by the news, it says in verse 4 that he assembled all the chief priests and all of the scribes of the people in order to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And then verses 5 and 6 say this. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Herod's assembling of the priests and the scribes is strategic. Throughout history, few people have ever been more divided than these two groups. They did not get along with one another. For a king who was paranoid about having his throne overtaken, he knew that if these groups were so different, they would not be colluding together against him. And so by bringing them together, he knew that if they could agree on something, that it must be true. And so when Herod puts prods them about the Messiah and where he's born, they respond by combining two verses. The first is Micah 5.2, which we read this morning in our scripture reading. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. With this verse of prophet Micah sets forth a prophecy that the future Messiah will be born in the little town of Bethlehem. This designation of of Ephrathah distinguishes this Bethlehem from other Bethlehems with the same name. In this insignificant town, the remains of Rachel were laid. In a meaningless place, in this meaningless place, Ruth and Boaz were married. And fittingly, it was here that the future King David would serve as a shepherd in 1 Samuel 17. The connection with King David goes even further, though, because we come to the second verse of decided. And first, we read a little bit in Micah 5.4, again from our scripture reading this morning. It says, He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord. But then we go to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And they say this, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, David, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. The birth of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy laid years earlier. By the virtue of the census, Mary and Joseph are forced to go to Bethlehem, just as Micah prophesied 400 years before. And thus the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. And not only does he follow the line of David, he fulfills the line of David, a prophecy that existed even further back. He will serve as a far greater king than David, 
ever was. Coming as a fulfillment of the law and abolishing people's slavery to the law. So while Herod was agitated and the people were anxious, the priests and the scribes were apathetic. When Herod assembles them and asks about the birth of the Messiah, we get no sense of hesitation in their response. They answer almost immediately. They, they, only, they not only agree on the prophecy, but they agreed quickly, giving little doubt that they knew the scriptures inside and out. They knew exactly where in scripture to cite, Micah 5.2. As students and teachers of this law, of this word, they of all people should have known the plan that God had laid out. And sure enough, they're quickly able to explain the situation. They're able to explain to Herod what has taken place. And yet there's no reaction from them. There's no sense that they go seek the Messiah. They certainly don't praise God in that moment. Herod at least had enough sense to be agitated by the birth of the one who could replace him. But there's nothing in the text to indicate those who should have known and been responding most of all did any responding at all. If I ask anyone this in this room, where were you on 9-11? Without a doubt, it would raise some sort of story for you. Many of you would respond the same way if I asked you, where were you when Kennedy was shot? Those questions evoke emotion, often compelling a story, a personal story to follow. It is because we are moved by the event. It has not only created a lasting impression, but it generated a response. As big as those events were, how much bigger, how much greater is this event? How much greater than should the response be to the arrival of God in the flesh? John Bloom writes, Passion and zeal are gauges that display that our heart treasures, of what our heart treasures, and therefore what fuels our lives. Those that should have known more than anyone else have no reaction at all. It's not just that they lack passion or zeal. They lack anything in response to the arrival of the Messiah. Bloom goes on to write, Few things expose us more than comparing what God is passionate about with what we are passionate about. This is Jesus, the very Son of God, with whom God will say, I am well pleased. And if the priests and scribes They can't even say that. If God is so passionate about his son, and yet the people are not, it takes little logic to establish the status of their hearts. This passage should scare us. It should scare you and I, because of the indifference towards Christ is so horrifying. If those with the most significant head knowledge have no response to the Messiah, how much more cautious should we be? I want you to know, finally, adoration, the response of the Magi. Verse 2, the Magi ask, Where is he who has been born of the king, born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And then, as we come to the end of the passage, beginning verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Because of who they were and what they did, the adoration of Jesus Christ by the Magi is slightly astounding. As evidence of their, by their placement in the Senate, as I early mentioned, the Magi are highly revered in this pagan culture. They're looked upon. From the word Magi comes our modern word magician. But certainly they were not like the common magician that we refer to today. Instead, these men who saw, they sought to be diviners of truth, but they did so through mystical means. The Old Testament does not look kindly upon them, especially because of their willingness to engage astrology. Admittedly, the line between astrology and astronomy in that day was very fine, if at all. And astrology was looked upon with a very disapproving manner, especially in the books of Isaiah and Daniel. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, even goes so far as to ban the practice outright. Because they cherished the stars rather than the creator of the stars, there is no doubt that astrology was hated by the Lord. It supplants his glory and replaces it with something greater, or something inferior, sorry. Something that only has value because of something greater. It only has value because of him. Yet astrologers were regarded in society. In Daniel chapter 2, they were noted as the highest ranking officials in Babylon. By the time we arrive here in the New Testament, secular society has adopted an even more esteemed view of them. They're known now not only as astrologers, but astronomers. And again, the line between the two has grown very thin there in that time. But they were also well taught in science and math and agriculture. And so they're able to converse with not only a variety of people, but they're able to give them advice and tell them how to move forward. Their skill in diplomacy and wisdom allowed them to be highly influential in society. Yet they obviously didn't have complete knowledge. Aside from knowing that only our, aside from the fact that we know our Lord, only He is omniscient, only He knows all things, we notice that they have to search. Meaning they don't have the complete knowledge of Christ's birth. They have to go look for Him and figure out where He was even born at. They must be guided by a star, a star created by God. And so their knowledge is not comprehensive like God's. What is admirable about these unadmirable people is their willingness to act upon the knowledge they do have. Despite not having complete knowledge, they still move forward. And even more, they respond and act on that knowledge in a very public way. Despite the response of everyone around them, the agitation, the anxiety, and the apathy... They move forward willingly to seek this new king. They're not turned away by the negative response to others, and they have no concern about how those people responded. Instead, they're only consumed by their purpose to worship him. Their willingness to invest their time in this search makes the quest even more admirable. Most believe that the Magi came from Babylon, and that's very likely that that is the case. But there were also magi in places like Arabia and Persia and Egypt. And those places all had Jewish populations, which mean the magi there 
would have had knowledge of the Jewish scriptures too. Where they came from, though, has no bearing on our text. What is important is to notice that regardless of where they came from, it meant an extensive journey, not just in time and distance, but in effort to bring people with them, to coordinate a caravan of people and all that they needed for that trip. This was not a quick road trip to go visit friends down the highway. It required planning and preparation. By the time we reach verse 8 and 10, it says Jesus is a child. He's no longer a newborn baby. He is a child. And then in verse 11, it says a family has moved into a house. That's where they find him. Not in the manger that we talk about. They've already moved on. And because of Herod's order in Matthew 2.16 that we keep coming back to, we assume that he was slightly less than two when the Magi came. Suggesting that it took that much time for the Magi to even find him. Even if they found him when he was about a year old, and that allows for the time for Herod to learn that he was deceived and issue his order, that means they would have had to spend a year searching for him. They would have had to invest a year of their lives. Most of us can't even invest 15 minutes of our day, and we don't even have to search. God gave us the scriptures. All we have to do is open the page. But these men searched for a year, and in the course of eternity, what is a year? Nothing. It's not even a speck of time. And then notice their response. First it says they rejoiced. Notice how they rejoice, though. To capture the intensity of their elation and their delight, the text adds all these adjectives, all these descriptive words (coughs) to explain how they rejoiced. Already the word rejoice suggests that they, the joy they had. It's in the word joy, rejoiced. And then you add greater emphasis by adding that prefix re, as in do it again. It's as though they couldn't contain themselves. But then it goes further and says they did so with great joy. They rejoiced with great joy. Their joy is compounded multiple times. It's like there's no description adequate enough, no words adequate enough to put into scripture to express the joy that the wise men had. This is not a sports team winning a championship. This is not a favorite politician entering office. This is not the type of joy a person gets when opening a gift at their birthday celebration. The joy described here is so intense, there are no words sufficient to even capture it, except to say that they had joy upon joy upon joy. And they turned this joy into something even more special. They converted into adoration. They converted into worship. It's likely that these wise men didn't even know who they were worshiping. I suspect they didn't see him as Messiah that would save people from their sins, as was told to Mary and Joseph. Instead, they were likely worshiping him as a promised deliverer of peace that you see in Ezekiel 34. Looking upon this and looking on the story, there is only one response. It is to respond in adoration. There's a reason we read Psalm 95, 6 this morning. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. If knowledge is only as valuable as it is useful, 
And what the wise men did with their knowledge is astounding. And it should be the same process for every believer. When we recognize who Christ is and what he has done, it should cause us first to rejoice at who he is and eventually to worship him. There's one final aspect of this text that's incredibly fascinating. As we saw last week when looking at Abraham, we saw that the Lord and his plan was always to save all people who would come to him, not Israel alone, although they were his chosen people. We see that and know that they had a special relationship, and yet they rejected him to the point that Jesus turns from them in Matthew 12. And instead, what does he do? He seeks out the Gentiles. What do you see in our text? The first people to worship Christ in Scripture are Gentiles. Despite all their knowledge, the priests and scribes are unmoved. Those of Israel who know the most about the coming of the Messiah don't respond with that knowledge at all. Instead, it's a group of pagan Gentiles who know little about Christ who come to worship him first. Their questionable activities as astrologers would cause us to say that they are undesirable before God. And yet it shows us that God seeks out all kinds of people, even people like you and I. And so this morning we we see the responses to Christ. Knowledge of Christ will always initiate some sort of response. For some it's agitation because it is a challenge to personal authority. For others, it's anxiety, because we're unsure how others will respond to Christ. And we're more concerned, how will that impact me? And some are apathetic. They have no response at all. But the only right response is adoration. If knowing Christ does not cause us to acclaim him and proclaim him, our knowledge of Christ is showing us we have no knowledge of Christ at all. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful that indeed you are, Father God. We're grateful that, as Father, you've sent your Son so that we may be adopted into your family, so that we may be called sons of God, sons of you. And Father, we look upon this story of the the birth of your son. We do so with anticipation of the future, anticipation of his second coming. Right now, Lord, as we look upon it, Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts to you. Father, may we rejoice. May we have joy that is inexplicable for the coming of your son and the birth of him and ultimately for his death, burial, and resurrection. And may we turn that joy, or may you help us to turn that joy into adoration. May we worship you because of who you are and what you've done throughout the ages. Lord, convince us to come to you more more frequently, more willingly, and more openly. I commit this time to you, giving you praise and honor and worship. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.